Content in this episode may be graphic or triggering. Please take care while listening. Welcome back to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast with your host, Detective Chris Anderson, and my partner, Fatima Silva. Hey, guys. We got a lot to share with you this week. Fatima and I will be doing some highlight cases, but before we get into that, I want to talk to you about a few things that have been going with me and with the book and with the sales. Guys, listen, I want to say thank you. Thank you for everybody that's purchased my book, The Case. It has been an amazing thing to see. You know, I worked on this book for a, oh my gosh, Fatima, it's been almost three years since I started mm-hmm. actually writing the book. And then, of course, I took a little bit of a break to finish up my degree, finish up a couple things. We had a couple seasons in between. So yeah, man, but to now to see it and hold the book in my hands and to see the sales doing as well as they are has been nothing short of amazing. I, you know, look, it's I'm such not- an accomplishment. Thank I am you, so Patrick. proud of you. Now you get to add author next to your name. That's really cool. I'm jealous. <laughs> Don't be. You one up me there, man. <laughs> I can't. There were a lot of people that inspired me to finish up this book. I can't take it away from my wife and my kids. But partner, I want to pre- I say thank you to everybody that's here and especially to you for helping inspire me to not only finish up my book, but you were one of the ones that pushed me to get my degree, man. I love you so much. And I thank oh, you. Oh, you're doing I big thank, things. And I, I knew you God would. I having you in my life. Partner. Oh, I love you too. Don't right. make me cry over here. Um, all right. All right. So proud of you. And yes, thank you so much to all our amazing. We have the most incredible following, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I get emotional thinking about it because we've connected with these people in the world of just the internet, right? The internet. Um, they've a lot of them watched our show, yes, but now we're friends on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and it's just something special to see how they are supporting you and everybody's buying the book. You're like number six in on um, what's the category? Oh, it's in America category, yeah, the, yeah. I mean. And I think it's going to continue to get toward number one. Right, right, right. Uh, so that's exciting. It is, man. It's been moving pretty fast. The release was actually three days ago, three or four days ago, and it started off at number 10, and now it's dropped down to number eight. And this morning, when I checked it, it was down to number six. So, yeah. guys, I appreciate it. keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody head over to Amazon. It makes a great gift for your true crime lovers, law enforcement friends, lawyer friends, for anybody, really. It's just a good read. And it's, I think it's got a great story and you won't be disappointed. So purchase this book as gifts. And that's definitely what I'm going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers so to we, that. Thank you, bud. I appreciate it. Well, Gosh. like you said, we have a busy evening. We got some cases to talk. And as much as I thought I was done with this case, because I mean, it's it's been a week of nonstop watching the news and all of the media and all of everything on television coming out. And you all know what I'm talking about, the Murdoch case. But now we still have more to talk about. There's mm-hmm. still more to talk about. The verdict came out since we released our podcast last week. The verdict came out very quickly. Mm-hmm. And we've got the jurors speaking out. And we've also got some family members speaking out. So Chris and I want to talk to you guys about that, give you an update about that, and then talk another case in the headline. But First, Chris, I got to ask now, it's been a week. What were your thoughts on how quickly that verdict came out? 
you know, I would love to sit back and say, I had this case pegged as him being guilty from the start, but having my partner on my side, she always helps me to see things in a different light. Was I surprised that they came back so quickly? Yeah, I was surprised. But now that I've listened to what the jurors said, and we're going to talk about and play some of those juror statements, now that I can understand why they came back so fast, because there was a lot that transpired being there every day, every hour of the trial, that really leads me to believe that these folks were really dialed in. They really listened to everything that was put forth before them, and they sat down and they came to a conclusion, no matter how long it took, they came to a conclusion based off of the evidence. Right. Well, I was definitely surprised, and anyone who follows me on social media, I did post that I was wrong. Mm -hmm. I was predicting last week that it would take a little while, at least a day. I thought maybe even two. Mm -hmm. I was very wrong about that. It turns out they really didn't need long to deliberate. Ultimately, it sounds like it was when they went back, they took a vote, and it was nine who were guilty and there were three undecided or one undecided to not guilty. But turns out those not guilties apparently just had some questions they needed answered. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like they needed a lot of persuading. I was wondering as soon as I discovered that, wait, there were two not guilty. Were these people pressured? That happens sometimes in these jury rooms. People are tired. They've been there a while. They can tend to bully. But it was only two and a half hours in. If somebody succumbed that fast, maybe it wasn't necessarily any kind of peer pressure. It was just simply they needed some clarification. Right. But let's listen to what these jurors said. They're already allowed to talk to the media, which mm -hmm. is surprising. Some places you actually have to wait longer to get that permission to speak to the media. But the jurors already had the chance to, and they were a few of them were on the Today Show. So Chris and I want to play a little of that interview for you. It's not long, and we're just going to comment on things that stand out to us in this interview. Thank you for being here after a, a, an ordeal, a six-week ordeal. You did your jury service, your civic duty. You're here this morning. How does it feel when you realize all of the attention? You knew it was a high-profile case. Did you understand how many people across the country were watching this? I don't think it ever really you know, hit that it would be this big. Yeah. How do you guys feel? Same. Yeah. I didn't think it would be this big. Me either. Oh, it's When big. you saw the cameras outside the court. It's big for sure. A lot of times you don't know what you're getting into because you're in a bubble and they were trying to pick a jury that didn't know too much about the case. They had probably mm -hmm. heard about it, but it's not like people like us who were really interested in it and following the case. Mm -hmm. So they didn't realize how big it was, but these people are basically celebrities right now on the Absolutely. Today Show. On the Today Show, wow. What have people said to you just in the last few days? You know, it's a small town. I mean, people, did they realize, oh, you guys have been on the jury? Have you heard yeah. anything? How, what is the reaction you've heard? So I think that, you know, it kind of spread pretty quickly. So I think that a lot of my friends were very respectful. They didn't try to reach out. You know, they didn't want to talk about the case because they knew I couldn't. Yeah. So I think afterwards, you know, as soon as the verdict came out, everybody was kind of just kind of sending me messages like, you know, what's going on? So there, the, we actually use this video today in my class. You guys, I teach criminal investigations and at my alma mater, Talladega College, the greatest institution this side of heaven. I always got to give them a shout out. But one of my students actually brought up a question and I thought it was a great question. I don't know if I answered it right, but I, I want to put it to you. This juror says that right after the verdict, 
some of his friends began to call him and ask him about the verdict and what's going on and things of that nature. We began to question him after the case. Now, her question was, how could they have known he was already on the jury? Wasn't that supposed to be kept secret? Now, I'm gonna, I wanna ask you because of course that's your area of expertise. Would that indicate that he may have spoken with someone and told somebody that he was already on this jury and that he couldn't talk about the case? And if he did, is that a violation of the law? So the rule is actually in cases such as this that are such high profile cases where they want the jury to remain anonymous and they wanna protect the juror's identity. It's really to the public. You absolutely cannot talk about the case, any substance of the case to even friends and family, mm -hmm. but you can definitely let friends and family know you are serving on a jury. You can even let them know what case it is. Mm -hmm. You just can't say anything beyond that. So his close friends, his family, especially if he was going to be MIA, I mean, these jurors were in court for six weeks. So right. Maybe when he says friends, it could be people he worked with or people he's close with that he had to say, hey, I'm going to be unavailable or or even he can talk to people when he gets home. He can just say, I, I was at court today. Can't say anything about it. That's it. And right. so they're allowed to know those people can know who is on the jury as far as that person. Right. He shouldn't right. divulge anybody else's name. Mm -hmm. But the whole purpose of keeping the jurors anonymous during the trial until they want to come forward on their own, which is what these jurors did, mm -hmm. is really for the public so that the, nobody can access them and nobody can pressure them. They can't get harassed or anything like that during the trial. Cool. That's kind of what I said to her. Good. Good job. <laughs> All right. So we'll move on a little bit further. Uh, you know, a lot has uh, been made over the past few days about the speed with which you guys came back with that verdict. Take, take us inside the deliberation room. As I understand it, not everyone initially thought he was guilty. Is that right? Correct. That's correct. Yeah, so throughout the case, a lot of people had talked about how we didn't have a notepad in the jury room. But we did, were able to have, or we weren't able to have it in the courtroom, but we did have them in the jury room. So a lot of people would write down questions as we, you know, went back during break. So I think that kind of made the deliberation a little bit more efficient. Everybody knew the questions they had. And we were able to get through them quickly. Yeah. Let's talk so about this the case to me a little bit. Really interesting. I don't know about you, Chris, but actually I do know about you. You're a lot like me. We take a lot of notes. Absolutely. So if I was on this jury, that would really stress me out not being able to take all these notes and questions that I have. But every judge is different mm -hmm. and every trial is different. Sometimes you're allowed to have notebooks. You're allowed to take notes. In this case, the judge did not allow them to have notebooks while they were sitting in the courtroom in trial. He did allow them to go have notebooks back in the deliberation room. And so as it sounds like as soon as they had breaks, they would go back and write whatever right. questions they may have had. Because keep in mind, these jurors couldn't even speak with one another about the case. Right. You mm -hmm. cannot speak about the case to one another until you are actually in deliberation. So... Mm -hmm pretty awkward. I mean, there's plenty to talk about with your family. And that's why everybody gets really close. Because when you serve on a jury this long, you do tend to get to know one another by speaking about your personal life, because that's all you can talk about. You can't talk about the case. So naturally, if they have a question, they can't ask the person sitting next to them. What did he say? Mm -hmm. oh, what did he when he was talking about the ballistics? What did he mean by that? They can't ask anyone and they can't go home and google it either they're not mm -hmm. supposed to do any outside research 
So I would be a terrible juror because I would want to know the answer right away. And I would probably, when you are told by a judge and the instruction is not to talk about anything, you don't, but that would, that would be difficult. And so what they were doing was Thankfully, they did have plenty of breaks. There were a lot of breaks throughout the trial, throughout the day that they were able to go back and and make their notes. But I do believe that this was probably best for a case like this, six weeks. Sometimes if you have your notes there, you are focused on writing your question, writing your notes and not paying attention to what's happening next. And I know that because I'm a note taker. And so oftentimes what I do is if I'm watching a lecture or something of that nature, I then go back and rewind it because I was busy Mm -hmm. writing my notes and thinking in in my head, finishing the sentence, right? Mm -hmm. That was taking priority, but there's no rewind for these jurors. So I think it was a great decision for them not to have the notebooks, not to be able to take notes during the trial when they're listening to the witnesses, because then they were able to really be present. Right. So yeah, I have to write down notes. I am a note taker when it comes to anything like I got notes that I have for this podcast. <laughs> I know you do, but here's the thing. I've I've been sitting across from you yeah. when you're taking notes and mm-hmm. then I'm still talking yeah. and you're in La La Land like, oh, now one second, I got to finish this. I <laughs> so we are case in point why you should right. not have right. notebooks while you're sitting there during the I, trial. I, I don't doubt that I, there are points. <laughs> I've done it plenty of times in homicide investigations. That's the reason why most of the time when you see me interviewing, especially a suspect or anybody, actually, I always have somebody back there taking notes on on what's happening. They also be in the room taking notes or someone will be in the actual interview room with me taking notes. Or if I am with someone conducting an interview or, or an interrogation, I don't take notes. And I just told my kids this. It's midterms for for most colleges. So that's the reason why I keep bringing up my kids because I mean, my young adults, because Mm -hmm. they are my students, they are in the midst of midterms. And we just talked about this, having two people or somebody back there viewing your interview so that they can take notes and you can pay attention to what the person that you're talking to saying is saying. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I could have gone through a six week long trial. I don't know if I could have gone a day of interview, uh, watching someone interview someone else without taking down notes. So that's just me. Unlike a case like the OJ Simpson case, where it's such a high profile case, you need to sequester the jury in this situation. They weren't, which is great for the jurors. They got to go home at the end of the day. They just couldn't have conversations about the case with anyone. But ultimately being sequestered could really make you lose your mind. And it mm-hmm. can lead to a lot of pressure in the deliberation room. So it sounds like here, There wasn't a lot of that. It was two and a half hours and it sounds like they were all on the same page. People may have had some questions, those who were leaning towards not guilty, Uh but those questions were clarified within that time frame. So it's tough to say that anybody really endured some kind of pressure with such a small window of time. So, right. Right. It didn't seem like they had much of a problem coming up with the decision. I know we had those few holdout jurors, but it seems like it didn't take much arm twisting to get them to rule on a guilty verdict. It's a little bit. Everybody wants to know what you think. What for you was the critical piece or pieces of evidence, Amy, I'll ask you first, that, that made you feel confident that this guilty verdict was the right one? Well, the witness testimony was very believable and the kennel video definitely played a major part 
and his testimony. Yeah. Yes. Murdoch's testimony. So there, they talk about the three things that helped this juror come to a decision. The kennel video, the witness testimony, and Murdoch himself testifying. Now, the kennel video, we hadn't discussed that yet, but the kennel video for me would have pretty much the nail in the coffin. I think you'll agree with that, that seeing him there and also him misleading the law enforcement officers in the beginning that he never went down to the kennel. And then here is the, a video that's found on his own son's phone where he is in the kennel with them and he's talking. Oh, he's talking. Yeah, his right. voice. Right, right, right. So that that to me, I'm, I'm sure it shot up red flags for these jurors. But then you talk about the witness state. And it seems like they took into consideration everything in this case. It wasn't just, just that one thing like the video. No, they talked about the witness testimony and how convincing that testimony was in this case. And then they also talked about him testifying, which I'm sure we'll talk about in just a minute. Listen, the kennel video, common sense, anybody out there with a brain, that was extremely damaging. Not just the video recording itself where you're in the background, but mainly the fact that he lied about it. Mm -hmm. And the first time he ever comes clean and says, I lied about being there is in the trial, which is these murders happened in 2021. Mm -hmm. So your statements to law enforcement throughout that investigation are that you are not at the kennel. So yes, it does not look good, but he had to take that stand to explain why he lied about that, whether it helped him or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, obviously it didn't help, but it, to not take that stand and say why he lied, that was going to hurt him too. So yeah. I do think he had no choice, but I can see why that video was so damaging. Right. Yeah, what about when he, there was a, you know, throughout the trial, there were a lot of witnesses saying, that's him, that's his voice. When he got on the stand, Gwen, and said, yeah, that was me. What did you think? Well, how did that strike you? Well, first of all, I couldn't believe that he was taking the stand. And when he got on the stand, I was like, okay. So it was him, you know. I don't know him, so I never, you know, he was voice, but I realized it was him. And in a kennel video, that just kind of sealed the deal. Do you think he should have taken the stand? No. What about you, Amy? No, he didn't help himself. No, no. So I hear what they're saying, but he was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. I hear this all the time from jurors. When somebody doesn't take the stand, oh, why didn't he take the stand? If he had nothing to hide, why wouldn't he get up there and say something? This is a trial about his wife and his son. He's accused of killing them both. He's also accused of major financial crimes, a drug habit, lying, 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 all these other things. He had to take the stand to explain all that away. Whether he took the stand or he didn't, they would still be sitting there making an issue of it. So yeah. I don't know if you agree with that, but how often <laughs> do we hear jurors say that? Especially when we were doing reasonable time, he heard it all the time. Well, I wish he would have taken the stand in his own mm -hmm. defense. Right. And yeah, we've heard it a million times on Reasonable Doubt because when we go and back and talk to a juror, they'll say, well, I wish I could have heard his story. I wish he would have said something in his own defense. And yeah, this is a case where the circumstances are pretty freaking damning because this is his wife and his son. These are two people that you claim to love and care for that have been murdered, horrifically murdered. And you are the main suspect in this case. So I can see it a little bit different in this case, maybe not so much in the case where 
the victim and the suspects in these cases didn't have any connection, but there's right. a very tight connection between there's these There's an two. expectation when it's your yeah. own wife yeah, yeah, and yeah. child that you're accused of killing. Absolutely. Yeah, I can see that. I can see it. I understand it. In the financial crimes, when, when the state introduced all of that evidence about the, the past financial crimes and the money he'd stolen from clients, the money he'd stolen from, from, the, from the firm as well, did that impact your decision at all? Did that make a difference? Well, we could only consider it as part of the motive. Um, it helped showing that he was very convincing and manipulative. And so it made sense. It's good to hear that they didn't feel that the financial crimes, they didn't consider it as damning as they probably could have, to, in, in my opinion. And also, as an investigator, we always, I've said this to you a hundred times, trying to figure out the whys, that's the hardest question to answer in, a, in any case. Most cases, you don't figure out whys. But for them, saying that it helped to establish a possible motive, and that's why they considered it, appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I think it's important, too, because you can't get into the head necessarily of why somebody would do something like mm -hmm. this. Right. You, you oftentimes have prosecutors trying to get into the minds of these individuals who commit these heinous crimes. And here you're talking about a father who shot his son at close range in the head. Mm -hmm. What possible motive could you come up with that anybody would ever understand? So I think here, naturally, they're just saying it's just all cumulative. Right. It's all part of it. But let's yep. see. Because he's very emotional. People watching from the outside thought, you know, maybe this will be compelling to jurors. Did you believe him? Did, I mean, he, did you believe his tears? Did you think he was crying? Some other jurors have said they didn't buy it. What are you shaking your head? No, I didn't think he was crying. He turned it on and off. Mm. Yeah. Ouch. It wasn't genuine. Do you think? Look, let me just tell you something about Auntie Gwen, one of the jurors that was there. Her size, her eye rolls. She yes. did not have <laughs> that is the, Like, no, Alex. That is the uh, uh, quintessential Southern auntie. You can tell her everything she's thinking by her face before she says anything. So, <laughs> I love to hear her talk, but and she, her thighs she, are saying it all. She's like, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, you know. So she mentions during the interview that she thought he was disingenuous when he got on the stand. I, I wouldn't doubt that she didn't roll eyes a couple times while she was. I know. I would have seen her reaction on <laughs> right. that stand. Right, but I can appreciate people like that. They gotta let you know exactly mm -hmm. what they're thinking. Think he hurt himself by taking the stand? Did he make it worse? I think he did. Yes. Why? I just think that, you know, we already know that he's a lawyer. He's able to be emotional. I'm sorry, did he say he lawyer or liar? <laughs> I think he said lawyer, but it's kind of like liar. A little bit of both. He's and a I think liar. Did just say liar? <laughs> Excuse me, I feel attacked here. I'm a lawyer. Jeez, what's he going to say? Oh, he's a lawyer, so naturally? Let me hear this guy. <laughs> he's a lawyer, so naturally he's a liar? Yeah, come on. Let's see what he's got to say. I just think that, you know, we already know that he's a lawyer. He's able to be emotional with cases. He's able to be emotional with himself. He knows, like what she said, when to turn it on and off. So I think that we were kind of mm -hmm. able to read right through that. Um, well, that's not fair, but okay. Basically <laughs> saying he knows how to play everyone, but but it didn't work. Nobody right. believed him. Nobody believed him, right, right, right. right. Yeah. Once again, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you do. Oh, you know, he didn't show any emotion. He wasn't crying. I didn't see one tear. 
or it's, oh, he showed so much emotion. It wasn't real. It was not authentic. This whole thing that we're, we can read people, it's just not true. And mm -hmm. especially when you're going to compare them to how you react to a situation, it's not fair. But this is what jurors do. This is what we all do in everyday life. I'm not hating right. on anyone. But. Right, 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 right. I agree. After sitting there for, for several weeks, and again, the state didn't have to prove a motive. Do either of you have any idea of perhaps why she did it? I don't know if we'll ever know. I think it may have been a combination of things, yeah. um, not just the financial, but everything was weighing heavy on him, I believe. Gloria, what do you think? I think it was, um, he wanted to have control of everything. You know, and um, his wife owned the majority of the things that they owned. Yeah, some thinking it was more like greed, sure. him being in control. I think the the prosecution had a very good point. It's a storm. Yeah. You know, at points in time, the defense would take one aspect and be like, you know, it couldn't have been this. It may not have been that one singular thing, but there's so many things there that contribute to that overall storm that, you know, I think it played a part. Yeah. You know, the first juror in this thing to say is that I don't think we'll ever know. And to me, I think that was the perfect answer because it kind of just says that she didn't draw her own conclusions. She listened to everything that was said and made her decision. That's important. And that's important to hear as a defense attorney as well, because we know that the prosecution doesn't have to prove motive. I, mm -hmm. Once again, you, you'll never be able to get in the mind of somebody and say why they did something. And so motive and whatever speculation they come up with, it's not evidence. It, it might be a nice story. It might put a bow on it at the end of the day for you to believe why they did something, but it's not exactly evidence. So to see all of their expressions at first, kind of like, mm, it's a culmination of things. It's the storm. It's kind of all they're left with, but it sounds like they were still taking the evidence and whether or not the motive fit didn't really quite matter. Because mm -hmm. once again, there's always the motive to kill a spouse, right? I mean, I mean, not for me, but for yeah, some people, yeah, I was about we, to we say. realize for some people, but when it comes to killing your child, I think it's something we all step back and go, what in the world? How can someone do that? Here we're dealing with someone who was a man of privilege, of wealth. He was very well known, very powerful in the community. Yeah. And so you think, okay, what in the world could your motive be? Even, even the financial, you're going to kill your son over that. It still makes no sense to me, but we just have to accept that was what the jury decided. And that's likely what happened if you were lying about being present at that scene. So right. at the end of the day, it is just comforting to know they weren't trying to weave this ridiculous motive of their own. Right, right, right. And you guys go and visit the scene, Moselle, this uh, estate where the coins took place. Was that worth your time? Was that worthwhile? Did you learn anything from that, James? Yeah, I think that we were, you know, throughout the case, you kind of see pictures and stuff, but until you get out there, you're not able to really see how everything plays a part. Um, there were a few things that I made mental notes of that I want to check out if we did go out there and I was able to, kind of, you know, take a look at that. Okay. Same here. I wanted to see how big that feed room was. It was very tiny in person. And I also wanted to see if you could see down there to the feed room, the kennels from the house. And you could. Yes. Tell me what your thoughts are on that, because you know who requested the visit to the Moselle. I don't. You know, I would think that that would be a prosecution uh, wanting to go down there. No, <laughs> it was the defense in this case. They wanted the jury to go to the property. Oh. They did. Sometimes it's helpful to give context 
they were using uh, arguments such as the two shooter theory, mm -hmm. um, perhaps giving context of how far away the house was to the actual kennel so that you couldn't hear or see what was going on. But it sounds like that backfired. Yeah, it didn't seem like that worked out very well for him. Because look, as an investigator, when I'm looking at cases, every homicide investigation on every homicide case that I've ever worked, I've always gone out to the crime scene. You have to go to the crime scene. There are certain things that will happen that you'll see, that you'll be able to feel, that you'll be able to pick up on the crime scene to know whether or not this person is being truthful or if this person is trying to mislead you when you go to the crime scene because you've seen it yourself. You got firsthand knowledge of what took place, what happened, or how things look, how the setup is in a case. And the only way that you can get that is if you go to the crime scene. So I'm a little surprised mm -hmm. that the defense would request that the jurors go out there but I'm not a defense attorney. I would always think that it would be the prosecution that would want the jurors to go out there so that they can show. It depends on what the theory is, right? right? Um, yeah. They definitely had a purpose. It's just unfortunate it backfired. For example, she says the feeding room was really small. We know one of the theories was that it was two shooters and that the shooter who shot Paul shot him in the chest and then went around behind him in the feeding room and shot him from behind. But now that you hear it's a small little area, it's just unlikely that somebody's going to squeeze behind the victim and then yeah. shoot it from behind. Uh, it just didn't play out that way for them once you're actually there and able to see it. So uh, definitely backfired. But look at apparently so did putting him on the stand. What's really revealing to me throughout this process has been and. I said it. I was completely shocked by how quickly the jury came back. I'm not alone in that. It turns out a lot of attorneys, specifically criminal defense attorneys, were very surprised. Now, does it mean that we're just so narrow-minded <laughs> and so pro-defense that we don't see what everybody else sees? It's that we understand the burden. We understand the value of all the evidence and what the jury should be weighing. Yeah. But what we tend to forget is when the jury goes back into that deliberation room, they may not be fixated on the things that we think they should be. Right, right, right. Uh, and that's how our system works. So mm -hmm. we may be focused on a lot of the evidence issues when it comes down to the ballistics or they should have seen that something was just circumstantial that wasn't even direct. Or, for example, this is a good example. In the closing, the prosecution said, and it was very emotional and it was very moving. I myself as a spectator was just really moved by this, this description. He said of uh, the mom hears a gunshot and runs over to her baby. She runs to her baby. And as she runs to her baby, that's when she sees what's happened. And then now she's the target. And all, that could have very well been how it happened, but we don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't know. She could have been standing in the area she was in and looked around and went, who's hunting today? What's going on? We don't know what happened, but that was very emotionally charged. And I think it would move anyone who was watching. Like I said, I was moved as a mother and you're imagining her running over to her son. That is not evidence. That's embellishing. That's that's speculation. In, that's problematic. So it's things of that nature that come in that suddenly the jury has a visual of that. And now they think, okay, I've, I've really got to make sure I get it right. And they're thinking that's evidence and it's actually not. So well, well partner, let me just, let me just say this. Now, if you hear gunshots and Lucas is out playing and you hear gunshots anywhere near them, what are you going to do? 
I'm going to run to my baby. You're going to run to your baby. So, but, I, you know, I, look. Or you don't know, right? Okay, this is getting in the weeds, y'all. But It really is. If, if the acoustics are showing me the gunshots came from a different area, and I'm looking in another area, and I don't even know my son's in danger. But what, are you, what are you still going to do? I'll probably still run to my son. But we are speculating. We are speculating. We are really are speculating. What, what somebody would do, should do, could do is not evidence. That's what, that's all I'm saying. And I'm just taking this, th this is neither here nor there. I'm just using it as an example that it moved people and that it's situations like that, that a jury could go back and be caring with them when we want them to focus on the evidence, right? Was it smart and brilliant on the prosecution's half? Absolutely. Was it probably what happened? We don't know. And so that's one reason things become an issue because you include things that aren't evidence, but the jury's still persuaded by that. What I'm saying is that sometimes we just get tunnel vision because we've been working. When you are a defense attorney and you're working a case, you truly believe in your case. Mm -hmm. e even when you feel like it's a loser of a case, you work so hard to find the arguments that do help you that you still go in thinking maybe there's a shot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you really do. I've had some terrible cases and you just start digging and digging and digging. You're like, well, this looks good for me. This looks good for me. You are zealously defending your client as you should because you believe in the case because you don't really know what happened because as a defense attorney, you don't ask your client if they did it. That's mm -hmm. like number one rule, right? You, you, you don't ask. And so, you know that, right? I, I, I never knew that. You, so as a defense attorney, you don't ask your client whether or not they're guilty Absolutely or not? Absolutely not. No, really? no. Wow. You never want to know that. No. And does why? this mean- Why would you not? Why would you, why would you why? not want to know? Because that's not, okay, here's, here's, now I'm not speaking on behalf of all defense attorneys. I would say a good defense attorney is never going to want to know, especially when you inside believe that they probably did it. You never ask. And here's why you need to get up there and defend them and convince everyone else that you are passionate about your case. You believe in your case. You believe in your client and their innocence. And if you know the truth, that can be difficult. That can be very hard and it can appear inauthentic to a jury. And that is not part of your representation. I don't need to know whether you did it or not. That is not my job. My job is to get up there and present the evidence and defend you the best way possible and make sure the prosecution proves their case. That's it. And so ultimately, because you don't want to know that, that really can help you form your arguments. I can honestly say I don't know if Murdoch's attorneys have, they, they may have had a hunch based on all the evidence that he did mm -hmm. it. I don't think they've ever asked him and I don't think he ever told them. I think they just went in and said, look, this is a father. He probably said, I would never do this. It had to be two shooters. And they said, we got to run with that theory too. Let's do this. And that's the way that they were able to do. It. And, and they did a great job in defending him with what they had. They really did. And so I think ultimately because of that tunnel vision though, we do get surprised sometimes when it yeah. comes back and you're like, Oh, that was fast. I didn't expect that. <laughs> so I wasn't alone in this. Really? <laughs> okay. Well, that's uh, Fatima Silva's lesson in lawyering. <laughs> Never asked. Never asked. The next day after the verdict, you went back for the sentencing. Why, why was it important for you to, to be there for, for that part of it? Just to see it through to the end. James, 
just like what she said, you know, we spend six weeks there, we bond, we're a very close knit juror at that or jury at that point in time. So it was important for us to go back and kind of, you know, see it to the end. We just decided what the verdict was gonna be. We at least wanted to see it to the end, see what the sentencing would be. Well, I mentioned that you did your civic duty, you're wearing your constitution mm -hmm. tie. It is a lot that we ask of our fellow citizens to sit in judgment of another. It's not easy, it's a great sacrifice in every way. So thank you for being here, spending a little time with us in a case that's gotten a lot of interest. Thank you. It is hard. It is. Have you ever hard. served on a jury? No, I have never served on a jury. I've been subpoenaed hundreds of times, so many times. You and every go, do you show up? I go every, every single time. Yes, I go. You do. Yes. And get eliminated the the very first day, it's just like, it's almost like walking into the jury room and it's like, hey, I got a subpoena to come to court and to be on the jury. So you sit in there for a few minutes and then you get picked. Mm -hmm. And when you walked in, that's like, that's Detective Chris Anderson. Yep, he's God. And mm -hmm. that's it, you know, that, that's, that's how it always does. And the same thing with my wife and kids too. My wife loves to go and try to be on juries, but she gets cut every <laughs> There's so many people time. who wanna be on juries. Yeah. Yes. I, I would not want to be tasked with that. It's hard. These people gave their lives for, you know, a month, a month plus, and then they have to go back to their normal lives. I have to say, just watching it all is weird to just move on and go back to your normal right, life. Right, right, right. You, you breathe, eat, sleep this case, and these things stay with you. I, I know this young man did another interview, and he was talking about just the graphic images and they were asking him how much it affected him. And I thought he said something that was really great. He said, this case wasn't about me. So I, I tried to push all that to the side mm. to just decide what I had to do here. And that's really important because we do tend to forget these people, they do see all those images. And oftentimes in interviewing jurors, like we, we have on reasonable doubt when we have access to jurors and they've seen some pretty terrible, difficult images, the ones you and I see oftentimes on the mm -hmm. show, um, that stays with them. And they'll say, I still remember that photo that I saw. I still remember the autopsy photo. And that's really rough stuff. And, and these are people who they're not asking, they're not true crime fans or anybody, right. you know, they just, they're going about their daily lives. And now suddenly they can't get those images out of their heads for years to come. So that's, it's a tough job. And anyone who shows up for jury duty, and does their civic duty. Kudos to you. We appreciate you. It's a, it's a very big deal. We need everybody to respond and show up. So thank you, Chris, for doing it, even though you know you're you're not going to get picked. <laughs> not going to get picked. Uh, I know I'm never going to get picked either. Maybe maybe for a civil trial or something, but not likely. I wouldn't want one anyway. God, that sounds boring. But ultimately, it's important to our justice system. And these people, it sounds like they, they came back with the verdict that they believe in. Before we move on, I also want to point out that Randy Murdoch, the brother of Alec, yeah. he was he was there in court. Now, now mm -hmm. what's the other guy's name? John Marvin. He testified, but Randy did not. Mm -hmm. And Randy gave an interview recently and he essentially said he finds it difficult to believe his brother did this, but that he believes his brother's hiding something. Absolutely. And that, that is, that is probably, even though he didn't testify, that is damning to me, for me to hear, because mm -hmm. I have two brothers. I have an older brother and a younger brother, and they go ride for me for the rest of my life, unless I do something really, really stupid. But to hear him say that they think that he may be hiding something, that's pretty damning. Keep in mind, this is the brother, too, who had to confront Alec 
around that same time because he was stealing funds because from their the, law firm. So they, they were part of the same law firm. They worked right. together. And so he realized his brother was lying, cheating, stealing. So mm -hmm. he's probably like, look, I mean, what else don't I know? Right. But that's, that's really tough to, to hear from your own brother. And I kept thinking about the family as this case was going on. A lot of times families stand behind their loved ones and then you get in there and you start to hear this evidence and they'll still say in interviews, well, I still stand behind them, but deep down, yep. you know, there's that doubt now yep. they heard that same evidence and mm -hmm. how do they overcome it? Mm -hmm. You've got to look at your brother or your loved one a little differently and say, mm, I still believe in you, but you're hiding something. Right. You're right. And, and that's normal, right? Because mm -hmm. that is normal. It really he, is normal. He was and, hiding something. Why, <laughs> why did he hide that he was at the kennel? Right. Everybody wants to know. And, and his reasoning wasn't sufficient for people. So absolutely. Absolutely agree. Um, we will continue to keep you updated on any other developments in the Murdoch case, especially because there are, we're learning that they might exhume the body of the maid who fell down the stairs yeah. um, to see if the family had anything to do with that, if it was an accident or intentional. Mm -hmm. And then the um, young man who was killed and they found in the middle of the road, Stephen Smith, uh, I think they're still looking in a buster for that. Mm -hmm. um, actually, Buster had to file a police report recently because it sounds like the media is harassing him and they're trying to get images of him no matter what, which is really sad it's not right he yeah. he lost his mom he lost his brother he probably believes in his father's innocence but i'm sure he's questioning that as well now mm -hmm. and he's lost everything so right. no no matter what allegations there may be or rumors we don't know anything about buster's culpability yet in any of these crimes i just think it's really sad that the media following him everywhere and trying to take photos of him i mean you had him every day in court what more do you need yeah, but you know how some some people operate. There, there's a story behind it. They're gonna get out there and get it, no matter who gets hurt in the process. So that's the Murdoch case, and I feel like there's gonna be so much more to come. Mm -hmm. But we'll probably have to not do a podcast on this for a while because I'm kind of over it. It's like these are the days of our life. I know, right? <laughs> but there's another interesting case that is happening in the news, and it's still unraveling, even as we speak today, mm -hmm. on March fourth. Four people traveled to Mexico, one of the border cities between Texas and, and Mexico called, and I'm going to say it's Matamorosa, Matamorosa, Matamoros, Matamoros. I see uh -huh. I got to tap in. See, that's, that's the reason why Matamoros. you can't leave me for six months because I lose all of my Hispanic you language. You sure lost that Spanish lost flow there. Mat Matamorosa, Matamorosa. Just Matamoros. Matamoros. Okay. Yeah. So it, this is one of the cities that is um, just really close to Brownsville, Texas. And four people, American citizens, crossed the border. One of those people were there to seek some medical treatments. We'll say that. Mm -hmm. I think it was more plastic surgery, but mm -hmm. they go across the city and they find themselves in a shootout. Two were shot and the others were kidnapped. This is bordering town and it is heavy with cartel mm -hmm. and there were warnings uh, yes. for us citizens not to travel in this area and everyone you need to take these warnings very serious when they give them there are parts of mexico that are extremely dangerous and mm -hmm. they are run by cartel 
And if they feel like there's any kind of threat in this case, it's believed that they were these four American citizens were mistaken for Haitian drug smugglers. And that's why they were shot at and then kidnapped. This is the kind of situation where they ended up in a bordering town that was extremely dangerous and territorial. The cartel are very territorial. Mm-hmm. And then this is a lot of Mexico right now. Unfortunately, mi tierra. Oh, I love you, Mexico. But lately, I don't want to go there. And I love me some Puerto Vallarta and Cancun mm-hmm. and all of that. And they're great tourist places. And I, I still encourage people anywhere that there are no warnings, go and enjoy the food, enjoy the culture. Um, but you do have to be very careful. And right. there were warnings in this area, which is really sad because I'm not victim blaming here, Absolutely. but it is a warning for everyone else. Be careful because they were mistaken for smugglers and they were just four friends, three of them going to support their other friend. She was a mother of six. Mm-hmm. Rumor is it was a tummy tuck she wanted. She had already mm-hmm. had other procedures there. I know people who go to Mexico for medical procedures because right. our healthcare system is so messed up that people are truly forced to go and cross borders and you know put themselves in danger. I'll oftentimes travel alone to get these procedures. I know people who have not just done plastic surgery, people who needed dental work who mm-hmm. can't, can't afford it in the United States. I know plenty of women. I go through all the fertility and it's expensive. And uh, I know a lot of women who go to Mexico for the fertility treatments. And Mm -hmm. so this is something that's very normal. People go there for medicine. You know, it's a lot cheaper there. And unfortunately, things like this can occur if it is a dangerous area. And so we know now the update as of today is that two out of the four have been killed. Yeah. Shade, Woodard, and Zendel Brown, unfortunately, they were killed. And Latavia, Washington, McGee, and Eric Williams have survived. They are in the hospital. I think one of them was shot in the leg. Mm -hmm. It's just really sad. You see it it happened in broad daylight, and it's on camera. Mm -hmm. Them being thrown into the back of a pickup truck. They're dragging a couple of the people. And these were just four folks from North Carolina in their white minivan who ended up lost trying to find the clinic. So it's a, it's a very sad situation. You know, and like we said, we're not victim blaming here. That's never been our intention, but what we want to do now is we want to warn people, you know, over 1.2 million people per year travel to Mexico for medical procedures, different procedures, but medical procedures. There was an article posted that two days prior to this incident happening, warning people not to travel to this particular city. Two days prior, the State Department had already started trying to warn people not to travel to certain cities in Mexico, but now there is a do not travel warning in place for a lot of the cities in Mexico, especially that city that this happened in. Because of all of the organized crime activity, including gun battles and armed robberies and kidnappings that are common along the border towns. Mm -hmm. Well, there's an investigation happening too with a public defender who recently died in Mexico. And this is a public defender out of Los Angeles. And they were celebrating their one year anniversary. He and Mm. his wife, they're both public defenders. And they were, I think it was Rosarito. And on their way home from, from celebrating one night, they were pulled over by local law enforcement. She says it was kind of a shakedown. They had ran a stop sign or didn't make a full stop. And so 
they were just trying to tell them, hey, if you give us this amount of money, we'll let you go. They didn't have that amount of money and it seemed to really upset the Mexican officers. And eventually they they gave them what they had and they asked them, where are you staying? And they disclosed where they were staying and then they let them go. And she was saying her and her husband were, they were pretty shaken up by it, but they thought, oh man, we're lucky they just let us go. They went back to the hotel. They had one drink in the lobby to relax. And then they went up to the room. She passed out in bed. He said he was going to take a shower. And then she's awoken to security banging on her door. And when she opens the door, they say, ma'am, is this your boyfriend out here? She's looking around. She doesn't see him. And then they're pointing over the balcony and she looks down and there he is. And he's already deceased. Their investigation was that he probably leaned over the balcony and fell. Mm -hmm. But it's a pretty high balcony. So you have to wonder, what is he doing leaning over the balcony? Somebody says maybe he was shooing away some pigeons or something. She's insisting this is homicide, that somehow they came back and she was asleep, didn't notice if somebody knocked on the door, if he heard somebody outside. The other thing is it's the balcony to the front of the hotel. It's Mm -hmm. It's not like he was hanging out on the balcony watching people in the pool or anything like that. It was just the front of their room. Mm -hmm. It's not like there's chairs or anything out there for him to be hanging out. So it does make you wonder, did something happen to him? So when they did get his body back to America, they had another autopsy done because the autopsy in Mexico just said he had some alcohol in his system and he fell. The problem is he's got his head abrasions as Mm -hmm. well. And so there's other things that the autopsy here discovered that makes you think this is more than just a fall. So it seems like there was some kind of altercation where he may have been hit prior to falling. Yeah. So that's still under investigation. All real speculation at this point. But mm-hmm. once again, it's just kind of a warning to be careful, right? For the record. Soy Mexicana, but there's danger in every country. Absolutely. And we know there is major cartel danger in Mexico. And right. so you just have to be careful. Right. Are all of us Mexicans dangerous? No, no. not at all. It's just like all, not all <laughs> black people this. are dangerous. You know, look, it's not about the race. It's about what's happening in that particular part of this world today. We just need to be more mindful, be more safe and take precautions to protect ourselves mm-hmm. in every situation. I'm going to Greece here in the next few months, actually, in the next two months. And I'm um, I'm afraid to go there. Well, Greece is amazing. But yeah, look, there are parts of anywhere you go, there are shady parts. Yep. So I'm in the Bay Area, California, Oakland. Come on, San Francisco. (laughs) Great place to live, but don't go on Nextdoor or the Citizen app or any of those apps because you will just never leave your house. Right. <laughs> so uh, wait a minute. Are y'all getting in the snow? We here in the south, we've heard so much about snow that's happening in California now. Are y'all getting in the There are parts. There really? are parts. Just seeing snow on our mountains, that's pretty cool for us. But there are some parts where people are seeing snow and they don't normally get snow. I'm not getting right. snow. Where I am, if I was, I would run outside and be super giddy and enjoy it for a few hours and then say, okay, go away, snow. Because you live in California because you don't want to deal with any of that. Right. Okay. You go to the snow, the snow doesn't come to you. (laughs) Well, that is good to know. I'm glad you are keeping yourself safe. And family, this is the conclusion of another episode of the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. Tune in for next week where we'll have more crime and more cookie juice. 
Good night, guys. Stay safe.